broke, bankrupt. Welcome to As I See It. I am Keith DeGrain. Thanks for joining me today. Now, today we begin a two-part series on something I call the Financial Responsibility Amendments. They are three constitutional amendments that I believe are urgently needed to help our federal, state, and local governments get their financial houses in order. They were written by my favorite author, me. Uh, and in fact, I'll tell you the story. They're actually, I actually wrote them eight years ago. Uh, we'll get into all that here in just a moment. Now, in part two of this, this is part one, in part two of this series, I will introduce you to the amendments themselves with a more detailed explanation as to each and at the premium member section of our website at degreen.com, you'll find printed material with both today's introduction and the amendments themselves with commentary. Now, at least I hope you will consider these amendments and my comments about them to be a, a worthy thought experiment that highlight issues we must effectively address sooner rather than later. But I really hope you will choose to support these vitally important reforms and that you'll take action to help make them a reality. Now, this is probably also a good time to mention, for what it's worth, that I am a retired, some would say recovering attorney with a degree in political science. I've been a certified financial planner since 1987 and have been politically involved throughout my career. For example, as a candidate for the United States Senate, and as a candidate for governor in Arizona. Also, for 35 years, I hosted a popular personal finance radio show during which we often took deep dives into our nation's finances. Now, why do we need the financial responsibility amendments? Do you really need to ask? You know it and I know it. Our government is broke. This is not an exaggeration. It is not hyperbole. It is not an overstatement. Broke as in broken, despite what the modern monetary theorists claim, when you borrow money to pay the interest on what you owe, when your spending exceeds your income every year, when you steal from other people's trust funds to cover your bills, that's as broke as broke gets, baby. Yes, we are, our government is broke. Now, unless we change course, our financial misconduct will destroy our country. Now, don't shoot the messenger on this. This is not a political opinion. It's a mathematical reality. Now, this is political opinion, and it's supported by the facts. Recent deficits and our growing debt have in recent years been rationalized by a bit of nonsense called modern monetary theory, or MMT predictably popular among academia and liberal elites, MMT is a macroeconomic supposition. It asserts that countries that issue their own currency, what they call monetarily sovereign countries, such as the US, UK, Japan, and Canada, countries that spend, tax, and borrow in their own fiat currency that they fully control are not operationally constrained. This is the theory of the MMTers are not oper operationally constrained by revenues when it comes to federal government spending. They don't matter. Translation, spend what you want, even if, you, if, even if what you spend exceeds what you bring in. Brilliant, huh? Simply put, 
Modern monetary theory decrees that such monetarily sovereign governments need not rely on taxes or borrowing for spending since they can print as much money as they need and are the monopoly issuers of their currency. Since their, house, since their budgets are not like a regular household budget, the MMTers say, government policies should not be shaped by fears of a rising national debt. Yes, this is the nonsense, and it's got a lot of credence right now in Washington, but this is the nonsense we pay our college professors to dream up. It is as broken a concept as is our government's budget. It plays directly into the hands of a socialist left intent on the economic destruction of our democratically capitalist society. According to MMT, we should not have experienced the nearly 16% cumulative inflation that we witnessed during the first 36 months or 31 months of the Biden administration through July of 2023. No, paying people to stay home, dumping trillions of unearned money into the economy without a commensurate increase in productivity was not supposed to matter. But instead, we saw the result and it has not been pretty. During those first 31 months, overall inflation roared back to its highest rate in more than 40 years. Gasoline prices rose by 51% after adjusting for inflation, real weekly earnings declined by 3.4% and debt held by the public, our nation's debt, has risen by 18.9%. And that's on top of a huge debt that we already have. Now, the Federal Reserve Board is struggling to bring down inflation and to prevent its recurrence while not killing the economy. Home mortgage rates are now at a 22-year high, and they may go higher. Home affordability has never been lower, with the average home price now at more than $400,000. In fact, when you increase the monetary supply or the money supply more rapidly than the rate of productivity, you will, you eventually must create inflation. This is not actual rocket science, folks. Unless, of course, you are an overpaid, underworked college professor. Incidentally, I don't have the most recent uh, numbers, but a few years ago, uh, professors at Arizona State and the University of Arizona, described by the Arizona Board of Regents as research university, that's news to the parents that are paying for their kids' education, those professors devoted on average no more than four to five hours per week actually teaching. They spent the rest of their time doing research, no doubt into the wonders of modern monetary theory and other brilliant alternative left narrative compliant boneheaded explanations of the universe. Nice work if you can find it. Let's talk about the three games that are being played right now. Our nation's financial condition is the direct result of three games we have played for far too long. The credit card game, the buy our vote game, and the big brother game. If we end the games, we save our nation. If we don't, we lose our nation. Now the financial responsibility amendments, the what I call the FRAs, that I propose or our um, amendments very or amendments very much like them. I'm, obviously, I favor my own, 
Those amendments can and must end all three games. They'll save our nation. They are that important. They are long overdue. The need is urgent. They will put America's financial house in order, ensure the benefits of liberty for countless generations, and set our nation back on its intended course of unimaginable greatness and wealth. Now, we got ourselves into this mess. We let it happen. We owe it to everyone, our children, grandchildren, all future American generations, and to the world to fix it now. And incidentally, everyone is broke. The problem is not confined to the federal government. Our states, territories, and local governments are also broke. The amounts are nearly incomprehensible. Often, these governments are overwhelmed by unsustainable defined benefit plans that have been enhanced over many years. Conflicting estimates abound. Now, I find that debt and unfunded liability numbers are sometimes uh, commingled, confused, or excluded. Now, the numbers we discuss here represent my best efforts to parse the data. Now, remember, these numbers will be worse by the time you even see this. Our combined, our combined debts and unfunded liabilities at all levels of government now exceed $36 trillion. Now, according to the Tax Policy Center, in 2020, out of 176.2 million Americans and married couples who could file a tax return, about 144.5 million actually did so. Of those 144.4 million, only 75.1 million, excuse me, 75.1 million paid no tax after deductions and credits. That left 69.4 million American, Americans who are the tax-paying households. They foot the bill. Those tax-paying households each owe, get this, $524,006 in unpaid debt liabilities. $524,000 per tax-paying household. Now, I mention these numbers not to discourage you, but to impress upon you the urgency of our situation. We will solve this with your help. Now let's talk about those three financially fatal games that I mentioned. Three fatal games have caused our dismal financial situation. We've played them for years, and if we do not end the games, we will end our nation. As I mentioned, they are first the credit card game. Congress borrows excessively, steals from public trust funds, and uses borrowed money to pay the interest on our growing debt. Excessive borrowing is no different than you and I choosing to live recklessly beyond our means. Rating public trust funds, such as Social Security and Medicare, is no different than the drug addict who steals to buy his next fix. You know, in the private sector, and I was a practicing trust attorney for a couple of decades, in the private sector, Raiding a trust fund is a felony. I repeat, in the private sector, raiding someone else's trust fund is a felony. And using borrowed money to pay interest on our debt is no different than you and I borrowing from one credit card to pay the interest on another. The credit card game always ends badly. Second, there's the buy this vote game. 
Sure. There are many examples of politicians buying votes. When a, when a politician hands you his dollar, when a politician hands you his dollar for your vote, that's a crime. But if that same politician with the power to tax hands you someone else's dollar, that's politics, baby. Now, buying the votes of some constituents by using the taxes paid by other constituents is an unsavory practice, but it will probably always be with us. However, the payment of unrealistic and unsustainable public employee pensions and benefits have created massive unfunded liabilities that are bankrupting federal and especially state and local governments. Now, legislators who negotiate with public unions are supposed to represent the constituents who are not at the table. Hmm. But predictably, they primarily represent their own political interests. Newsflash. While the public at large is not focused on such negotiations, the public employees' unions are entirely focused on them. They can and do mobilize their members in a heartbeat to support or oppose the very politicians who are supposed to be negotiating with them independently on behalf of the broader public interest. The result is inevitable. The purchase of public employee support with your tax dollars. Wild benefit promises made to public employee unions in exchange for their political support violate the rights of all other citizens. We must fix this even as we treat our public employees fairly. And third, they're not incidental. Public employees, you know, they're not criminals. They're just doing their job as a unified labor force. And we just need to balance, uh, balance the scales there. Now, and third, there's the big brother game mm. or out of control regulatory process, automatically growing government. It costs taxpayers trillions of dollars every year and violates our fundamental rights. This creates a structural bias in favor of ever-growing, more expensive government. Regulations have the force of law. If it swims like a duck and it quacks like a duck and it looks like a duck, it's a duck. For all practical purposes, they are laws, in my opinion. Now, Congress has excessively and unconstitutionally delegated its lawmaking responsibility to unelected bureaucrats. The result? A self-perpetuating regime of expensive administrative fiat that contributes to the automatic growth of government without the consent of the governed. Now, let's talk about why we must adopt the financial responsibility amendments. Now, more than eight years ago, in 2015, I penned what I call the Financial Responsibility Amendments. I had hoped to launch a movement called the FRA for Financial Responsibility Amendments. However, a few months later, after I finished all my work on the amendments, new business at our investment advisory firm exploded. <laughs> the Green Capital Management grew at an astronomical rate, and it took all my efforts to manage that growth and serve our clients old and new alike. So unfortunately, the FRA movement died of neglect, my neglect, for which I am responsible, until now. Frankly, at 74, and now retired from the financial services industry, you know, at 74, I'm getting a bit long in the tooth 
to lead what will probably be a multi-year effort to pass these amendments. So I am hoping, sincerely hoping, that America's BYPs will step up and lead the charge. What are BYPs? Bright young people, of course. I will help in any way I can, but it is time for the next generation to own the consequences of our out-of-control fiscal mismanagement. I therefore challenge you respectfully to pick up the mantle and lead the charge. Now, my three proposed financial responsibility amendments, let's talk about it. They provide a permanent constitutional context for responsible financial decision-making by our elected leaders. They therefore bequeath to each generation the right to make its own tough choices. They protect public trusts, such as Social Security, and level the playing field between public and private sector employees, pension and benefit costs, and so on. Finally, they reduce the automatic growth of government through excessive regulation and diminish their financial impact on citizens, all while better protecting our right to representative government. Of course it can be done. Did you know that we have successfully amended the U.S. Constitution 27 times since it was originally ratified in 1788? Now, since the adoption of the Bill of Rights in 1791, those are the first 10 amendments, we've amended our Constitution on average more than once every 14 or 15 years. Now, please do not, I repeat, do not believe for a moment that we cannot amend our Constitution yet again. Please do, I repeat, do reject the nonsense that by attempting to amend the Constitution, we will subject our entire system to radical revisions. All successfully ratified amendments have one thing in common. They were presented to the states as a yes or no question. A properly drafted amendment does not open the door to endless mischief. No ratified amendment ever has. No ratified amendment ever has, nor will ours. Now, as explained in Article 5 of our Constitution, amendments may originate either from Congress for approval by the state legislators or from a constitutional convention called by the state legislatures. Now, in truth, no ratified amendment has ever originated from a state-mandated convention. However, this approach cannot be ruled out and has been threatened in the past to spur congressional action. When authorizing a convention, states can limit the convention's authority to consideration of a single question, or in this case, three. While the president plays no formal role in the amendment process, he or she can obviously play a key role in promoting or defeating the amendments. Now here are the applicable, here is the applicable provision of our Constitution. It is Article 5 of the United States Constitution. The Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution, or on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states, shall call convention for proposing amendments, which in either case shall be valid to all intents and purposes as part of this Constitution, 
when ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of the several states or by conventions in three-fourths thereof, as the, as the one or the other mode of ratification may be proposed by Congress. Again, I implore you to remember, what is at stake? The very survival of the greatest nation ever conceived. We can, we shall make this happen with your help. Now our goal, the goal of the financial responsibility movement, the FRM, is simple but not easy. To achieve the ratification of all three financial responsibility amendments, FRAs, as amendments to the United States Constitution, and to ensure that the government faithfully complies with their requirements. Now, to accomplish this goal, we must employ practical political strategies. These will include the establishment of one or more political action committees to relentlessly push for ratification, raise and disperse funds exclusively in support of the amendments, provide education regarding the urgency of the matter, promote the amendments to the American public, endorse and aggressively support candidates who support the amendments and hold them accountable, shepherd the amendments through either Congress and the state legislatures or conventions authorized by state legislatures as necessary for their successful ratification and establish a continuing, this is important, nonpartisan compliance committee to help ensure that the financial responsibility amendments are faithfully implemented. I might add that the language of the amendments themselves that we'll talk about in part two make every American part of a compliance committee, as I'll illustrate here in the second segment. Now, I know it's a tall order, but democracy is a tall order, and it is our job to rise to the challenge. Is this our legacy? I encourage you to visit for a sobering, worsening, ever-worsening picture of our nation's finance our, and our annual deficits and our accumulating day, debt and our unfunded liabilities, the extent to which government benefit programs are underfunded, all point to one conclusion. America is financially bankrupt. And what the website is that I'm recommending to you is uh, the U.S. Debt Clock the U.S. Debt Clock. If you just Google U.S. Debt Clock, you'll see it. it's a really good website, and I encourage you to take a look at it. It is not an overstatement to say that our nation's fate and freedom itself depends on whether we, today, confront and solve the problem. Meanwhile, we are leaving a horrible legacy. Our children and grandchildren are less free to decide our nation's priorities than we were. Yet every free generation should possess that unfettered absolute right. We, you and I, can change all this. We, you and I, can leave a legacy of financial responsibility. We, you and I, can save our nation. The transition towards sound financial management. Let's talk about that. Now, if you read the first paragraph of each of the three financial responsibility amendments, you will have a pretty good idea of what each will accomplish. However, our nation's finances are complex. Each amendment must devote substantial language to the transitional process of unwinding existing practices. Our finances are complex. Now, over time, as the transition is complete, a portion of each amendment's transitory language will no longer be relevant to us. However, 
It may serve as a roadmap for other nations who will wish to emulate our success, much as many nations have embraced our Constitution. Now, if we were a new country starting fresh, the language of each amendment would be much simpler. However, we have complex financial practices already in place. These involve trillions of dollars. Therefore, we must cautiously but diligently transition from our current calamitous course toward a permanently sound solution. Now, this transition process is the most complex part. It must equitably change old habits without penalizing people who have relied on them and without setting standards that cannot be immediately met. Now, this prudent but determined approach will set the foundation for generations of sound financial management. Even financially responsible governments borrow money and occasionally run deficits. Usually, they, even they usually offer and manage pensions and benefits and must have protocols in place to deal with many eventualities. That is why, even after discounting the transitional language, the FRAs may seem complex to some, but each contains at least one simple inveterate principle. Meanwhile, each sentence of each amendment has been thoroughly researched by yours truly and, I, and is there for a reason. Now, I prepared an essay that is organized to help you navigate some of the intricacies. In the essay, you will find this introduction, the reasons why for each amendment and each of the three amendments. The financial responsibility amendments are not partisan. Incidentally, you'll find the essay on the premium section of our website. The financial responsibility amendments are not partisan unless you regard freedom itself as a partisan issue. They hold no bias unless your bias favors freedom for all generations and they favor no specific solution to our many challenges, unless you regard financial prudence as a solution in itself. Oh, there are many ideas, but only one path. Now look, there's no shortage of credible ideas for fixing, to name just a few things, our schools, our tax code, our healthcare system, social security, our banking system, or the environment. These are just some of the issues we face today, but future generations will face issues beyond our ability to imagine. The timeless brilliance of our Constitution is not that it attempts to tell Americans what solutions they should reach. Instead, it provides the democratic context, the path of representative democracy in which problems must be solved. This context, this path, gives voice to competing interests on every issue. In computer terms, if you regard the great, issue we will, great issues we will always debate as the apps, the financial responsibility amendments are the long overdue financial operating system. Apps change, but the right operating system can accommodate those changes for hundreds of generations to come. Now, as I'll explain in a moment, the Constitution devotes very few words to the subject of how Congress must manage the nation's finances. Providing a more detailed blueprint for the responsible management of our nation's finances is long overdue. Does all this involve more taxes, more austerity, or growth? 
Well, the financial responsibility amendments will force Congress, the states, and our local governments to engage in real debate over how to manage the money we have and how to increase revenues, rather than the false debate over how to spend more than we have while endlessly financing the difference. Should we raise taxes, reduce government spending, or lower taxes to grow our economy, producing greater wealth and greater tax revenue? Now, personally, I'm strongly in the pro-growth camp, but the financial responsibility amendments are neutral and should be. Their job is not to decide such matters, but to create a context in which, in which each generation may responsibly find their own solutions. Are the FRAs too much, too little? Well, just as surely as some will feel that the financial responsibility amendments go too far, others will feel they do not go far enough. There are other proposed amendments out there on many subjects, and I don't disrespect those efforts or the right of others to present them. But I assert here unequivocally that they won't matter if our nation does not survive financially. We must put our financial house in order first. Only then will we retain the freedom to make the tough choices that lie ahead. You know, one of my favorite sayings is this, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. While other ideas abound, while some will want to debate the merits of various financial solutions even before we create the constitutional context for such a debate, and while others will insist there's no problem, we must, we must keep the main thing the main thing. Our main thing is this, end the three games that have caused the problem and provide a constitutional roadmap to ensure America's financial greatness forever. Now, here's a summary of the financial responsibility amendments. First, there's the financial heritage, or otherwise known as the financial responsibility amendment. It would be Amendment 28 to the Constitution. It ensures that debts are repaid within a reasonable time without using more borrowed money to pay them. It makes some technical distinctions regarding how we treat public debt, non-public debt, and war debt. It provides specific debt repayment deadlines depending on the type of debt. It protects trusts like the Social Security Trust from being raided by politicians, and it requires the government to issue financial reports using generally accepted accounting principles, gap, what's known as gap accounting, to eliminate deceptive reporting practices. Now, second, the Public Employees Fairness Amendment, that would be Amendment 29 of the Constitution, while giving public employees a square deal, eliminates the use of government Ponzi scheme-defined benefit plans over the next 20 years. Those defined benefit plans rely on an increasing number of younger employees to pay for the uh, longer and longer uh, retirements of older employees. It puts defined contribution, public retirement plan contribution levels and benefit payments on an equal footing with the rest of us. And third, the regulatory responsibility amendment, that would be amendment number 30, requires that Congress approve regulations before they take effect. 
For too long, this is so important, for too long, Congress has abdicated its legislative responsibility to an unelected bureaucracy. The regulatory responsibility amendment also requires, over time, that Congress approve existing regulations for them to stay in effect. It also exempts administrative regulations that don't affect the public. I'll give you a great example, military rules of conduct and so on. That, that affects the military. That's not something that would have to pass, uh, pass Congress. And it restricts a president's use of executive orders without the approval of Congress. They can, he can still issue them, but they have a two-year expiration, and he can't just keep doubling down and reissuing the same order. So to whom do these amendments apply? Well, the financial responsibility amendments would apply to all levels of government, including Congress, the states, and territories, and to local governments. They may be enforced by any citizen subject to reasonable court rules, meaning that courts can consolidate if a whole bunch of citizens file a claim that something Congress did or their local legislature did, um, it violates the that these constitutional provisions, the courts can consolidate the claims into one to keep things manageable. But citizens ought to have the standing to step up and say, wait a minute, you're screwing me. This isn't right. This violates my constitutional rights. Also, the, the amendments expressly do not otherwise infringe upon the rights of the people. Now let's understand an important chapter in our history. I offer this bit of history. This is really cool. This bit of history to provide historical context regarding our mission. Now I invite you to reflect on the incredible, almost miraculous accomplishment of our founders. I encourage you to consider the profound duty we each carry to ensure that their dream survives. You know, in 1787, beginning in May and through the hot Philadelphia summer, delegates from 12 of the 13 new United States forged our Constitution. Rhode Island refused to attend. Now, the delegates approved the Constitution on September 17. Exhausted, they then promptly went home. On June 20, 21, 1788, the next year, New Hampshire became the ninth state to ratify the Constitution. Now, having been ratified by nine of the 13 states, the Constitution officially became the supreme law of the land, even as other states took much longer to ratify the document. By the spring of 1789, the first Congress had already been elected and convened and our first president, George Washington, had been inaugurated. Incidentally, so great was his prestige that Washington was the only president ever to have been elected unanimously by the Electoral College, not once, but twice. Thus was won what I call the second American Revolution. You know, throughout history, most revolutions have been fought in two phases. First, the winning of independence from an oppressor, and next the establishment of a government intended to be better than what it replaced. Inevitably, the second aspect of every revolution is the most important long-term, the effort to give lasting meaning to the sacrifice of those who fought in the first. Uh, sadly, many second phases of revolutions 
often produce profoundly disappointing results all over the world. For example, as our first revolution against the British was ending, George Washington was encouraged to march his troops into Philadelphia and to take control of the government as dictator in chief. He declined and the America we know was born. But how many men would have declined? Hmm. Our first American Revolution officially ended with the treaties of Paris and Versailles on September 3rd, 1783, as Great Britain surrendered sovereignty over the United States. The first revolution was fought to win independence from Great Britain. At the time, not one state intended to surrender its sovereignty to yet another powerful central government. However, by 1787, it was clear that the loose affiliation of independent and sovereign states created in November, on November 15, 1777, by the Articles of Confederation, that that conglomeration was insufficient to conduct foreign and domestic business or to manage our nation's debts. It was also clear that settlement of our Western lands stretching potentially to the Pacific would require a unified national government. Thus, the second American Revolution was won by those who sought a truly unified national government. How did they do it? This is, this is pretty cool. In 1787, James Madison, John Jay, Alexander Hamilton, and George Washington, with the help of Governor, that was his actual first name, Governor Morris, combined practical politics with their then radical theory of representative democracy. Almost single-handedly, they managed to redirect the local and often parochial interests of the states toward creation of the greatest national democratic government in the history of mankind. From well before the 1787 Constitutional Convention, at which Washington lent his enormous prestige as chairman, until the end of their lives, these men and many others fought to establish a government constrained enough to effectively protect the rights of the people while powerful enough to effectively serve the public interest. When the Constitutional Convention delegates adjourned in September 1787, they knew full well that among other things, the Constitution did not yet provide a comprehensive but non-exclusive list later known as the Bill of Rights, to articulate the innate rights of the people with which we were endowed, not by government, but by God. They left this and other work unfinished, but they also left something profoundly important, Article 5 of the Constitution. Now, as we've discussed, Article 5 prescribes the two methods available to amend our Constitution. The first is from Congress to the states, the second is from the state legislatures through a convention. The procedure is simple, but not easy. It should not be easy. The bar is high, as it should be. By 1791, the first 10 amendments, our Bill of Rights, had been ratified by the states. And since then, as I mentioned, 17 other constitutional amendments have been ratified. And it's critically important to remember that in every case, the states were presented with a simple question, yes, no question, to approve or disapprove the precise wording of the amendment presented. Now, whether an amendment originates from the states or from Congress, 
fears of an open-ended convention where all aspects of the Constitution might be thrown open for debate, those fears are hogwash. It is true that some states, during the constitutional ratification process, attached conditions to their ratification. When possible, those conditions were ignored or treated as suggestions, where not the conditional ratifications were treated as no votes. Now, many other states offered recommendations to improve the original Constitution, foremost of which was the recommendation to include a Declaration of Rights. But such recommendations did not affect the central question of whether a state approved or disapproved either the Constitution or subsequent amendments as submitted. That's important. So the delegates of the Constitutional Convention of 1787, they were kept busy enough preparing a founding document that could be both ratified and capable of standing the test of time. Nor could they have envisioned the enormous complexity of our nation's finances today. That would have been impossible. Nevertheless, what they did accomplished nothing short of a miracle. And now it's our turn. I encourage you to examine the financial responsibility amendments and my comments to them in part two of this series and to review the financial responsibility essay included in the premium member section of our website at degreen.com. Yes, now it is our turn to right the ship, to preserve the revolution, to remain not only the world's brightest light, but also its most reliable and financially stable beacon of freedom for generations to come. I am Keith DeGreen. Thanks for watching. This is As I See It.